hello, it's a ghost. I'm just kidding. It's January Garcia, again here to visit you in the middle of the night with another apparition of the Slam Richmond Podcast. Y'all, we have one, two, three, four, five artists for you tonight to include a comedy set from Savan, a trio of deadly spoken word poems from Conduit, the debut of teen poet Demi at our open mic, some smooth words from Mikkel, and finally, our own apology, this time at the mic with some surreal storytelling. To make up for scaring you in the intro, we're going to start the show off with a comedy set from Savan to act as our tour guide through the mystery and wonders of No Nut the Member. Here is Savan. But you know, I'm not a writer. I just think of myself as a funny guy. So I'm gonna tell y'all, this is a short PSA. I'm not gonna take your time because he forced me to come up here. It's crazy. Gun to my head, it was bad. Uh, I'm gonna tell y'all, <laughs> but tis the season. Now, a lot of y'all may or may not know about it, but uh, it's November. And um, you know, I know a lot of people make these claims, but I actually found the way to reach enlightenment. And it's through No Nut November. Now. A lot of people, a lot of people know about it and they think it's a joke. But in all seriousness, if you can go 30 days without busting a single nut or get into that point, I promise that you'll hit Nirvana. I'm going to tell you a few testimonials. I had a friend. Hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. You know, I have a, a multitude of friends. They all hit varying levels of the challenge. But I've only known one to succeed. Now, my friend Eli... He hit day 15. He was a trooper. He was doing good. But unfortunately, you know, he had just gotten a girlfriend in the middle of November. It was a horrible time for it to happen. But he told me, he told me before uh, 15 days was up, he saw a different color. That's the beautiful thing. That's the simple one. Like he could see a new spectrum of color. It was beautiful. However, uh, th that, that's just, that's the small part of it. I had another friend. His name was Robert. 20 days, 20 days, he nearly made it. But unfortunately, um, he forgot to uh, unfollow an Instagram model. And it's a slippery slope. One thing leads to another. But here's the thing. When he was scrolling on Instagram, he was actually on his ceiling, upside down, floating, <laughs> going through his phone. Now, I'm going to tell you about one last person. His name was James. He was, my, he was my childhood friend. And he's the reason why I did not complete the 30 days. You see, he started a few days before I did. He started, I want to say it was October 27th. And by the time he got to November 30th, he had literally turned into a ball of light. <laughs> it was beautiful. I actually am colorblind because I look directly into it. So I'm telling y'all, y'all may have already failed. It's only day two. I know a lot of people. I'm trying to get people to that point. I know a lot of people who have already failed. You know, I'm struggling with it myself. But if you can hit 30 days, all of your problems will be solved. So tis the season to not nut. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Savon. We laughed our faces off. 
Now here to bring us back to earth, Conduit's at the mic with three pieces about a broken apart marriage. Her visual imagery and wordplay in these pieces made the audience gasp when we heard it. So here comes Conduit. We chose each other and the death wish in every kiss had insides crumbling, shutting down internal organs playing our funeral song as caresses became the ivy creeping across our skin and strangling our joy. It started to make us itch under the cabin fever of being around each other and the toxic thoughts started forming acid clouds that popped on us and began melting us further away from who we were when a poison paradise sounded as sweet to the ears as the venom tasted the first time we saw each other. Parting is such sweet sorrow. My open palm kissed his cheek with a passion that made his knees weak and caused a blush to flood his face, leaving a limp print of fingers caressing him tenderly and holding the last of my love to him so that he wouldn't try to reach for me again with gift-wrapped lives tumbling and rattling broken promises inside of a box of empty words. I'm tired of being Rosalind. I'm tired of seeing the balcony. To be honest, I'm just tired of the whole freaking play where these actors keep performing scenes in my bedroom because Romeo can't keep his eyes on just me. He gazes off until he locks eyes on her, a vision of beauty that is called Juliet or Samantha or Tiffany or Amber or Ebony or anyone else that catches his gaze. And I can no longer have his attention until she no longer wants his attention and those eyes focus back on mine. I can't tell you how many times that I've kissed the poison on his lips only to survive to the pain infiltrating my system and then sword fight with myself about the truth of his infidelities until it stabs me and starts killing me while I'm masquerading smiles across my face. No nurses could talk me out of this nonsense. No friars could help me pray in the end. I just... I just don't want to keep pretending to play dead until I really die within this tomb. I don't want to be the death scene we're playing constantly in someone's memories. I don't want to be Juliet either because she dies in the end after giving her all to a broken boy. And broken boys like to break things because they don't know the true meaning of being careful. I want to be the rose. The rose that by any other name that would still be just as sweet, not the sour afterthought of marriage vows pushing divorce papers across tables. And that's why I'm okay with exiting stage left, because if he can't keep it in his pants, then I need to go away and keep my chastity. And although this has been a terrible experience, it has been an experience either way. And I'm okay with saying that parting truly is such sweet sorrow. This one is called Dreams Aren't Easy, I See. My eight-year-old self floated amongst the stars, and here I am, 27 and chained to the ground, picking the locks while we're learning how to reach for them. Thank you, Conduit. That was brutally crushing in all the right ways. And now, it's time for a poem by Demi. 
a writer who has been coming regularly to our writing workshops, but finally made it to our open mic for the first time. We were blown away when we heard this poem. The kind of poems we usually hear from her are very soft-spoken, vivid and whimsical, yet somewhat reserved. And this was very not that. Here is Demi with a two-part spoken word piece about religion addressed to her grandfather. Rebellion, two parts. Part one, grandfather, you said I'd be a celibate priest. So I fucked the boy who clinked your blood on Friday nights, drew upside down crosses in the steam of a car window and felt him count the freckles of my breast like stained glass on a temple. Grandfather, you said my friend couldn't get married. So I wrote a letter about how you're so concerned with dicks up ass, spitting out you're the dick with your head up there and never returning. I believed love was drunk, sticky bodies in the stall of a bar bathroom, grandfather. The newspaper's headline read sex scandal. So I snuck out at midnight to put fuck yourself instead on a church marquee, showered and pressed each corner of my body in the tile evaporation, ensuring no priest would stroke me like a hand-carved pocket cross. Grandfather, I read women were to be submissive. So I ripped my jeans, straddled a man, and jabbed my finger on his chest, told him to pursue with tongue, clean me like the bone of grilled meat, fill the cracks, worrying your name, the possession of my rebelled flesh. Part two. <laughs> Grandfather, you said I'd be a celibate priest. So I grabbed my soft limbs and flesh with wasteful, sweaty palms, wrote namaste and burnt incense to rid your contempt, and struck matches to light lavender candles beside mantras of mine, mine, grandfather. You said my friend couldn't get married. So crayons and imaginations made rainbow flags on Sunday morning while Bluetooth sang Beyonce and we made jokes about a gay Jesus who commanded love just to realize our fellowship was church. Grandfather, the newspaper's headline read sex scandal. So my thoughts strung tears as paper doll chains tearing to bits in wind. My wordless steel blue paint stroking in wonder of how to draw a love letter to children, a love letter to God. Forgive us, for we know not what we do. Grandfather, I read women were to be submissive, so hand to chest I submit to its beating. Pray Jesus, Allah, Yahweh, Prayed love to infuse my cracks, cradle what no church nor man could fit. I remembered the choice, and thanked God I chose love.
Demi, we officially no longer know what to expect from you, and we no longer have any limitations in our mind about what you can do. Next on our list is a gentleman who is no stranger to the microphone, a spoken word poet by the name of Mikkel. Mikkel took several different poems and weaved them all together in one long piece, reciting them all from memory. By the time he was finished, our host Cell had to ask him if he was single, because we were certain that he wasn't, and if he was, he would not have been by the end of the night if he didn't want to be. So get ready to be seduced by Mikkel. I'm a poor choice of words, an idiot, an insensitive bastard. I'm that tip of the tongue that a teaser tissue come if I have to. I'm that moment before an orgasm, anticipation, but no longer on that station, cop the DVD. Because now I'm thinking like a genius that I should change the name of my penis to Mikkel because I swear that it's so hard to be me. And this is from the mind of a man that made metaphors his mistress. I've been cheating on my words ever since I was born. And my lips are only faithful to a language that enables them to speak what people seek and to that I'm sworn. I believe it's critical that if your lyrical ain't visual, you fucking with the fabrics of a fetus unborn. That's why I stand before you not in the physical or spiritual or mental. I was made how I was made. I'm deformed. Poets ain't poets. They're prophets that were sent by God basically to mess up so you can learn from their mistakes. But the devil has prophets that'll tell you don't stop it and that God will forgive you for the errors that you make. But forgiveness is a privilege that is parallel with faith. And without it, all you do is write a carousel of hate. Won't give you more than you can bear. So when you say, how much more can I take? It's like praying a prayer that says, Lord, let me smack you in your face. How dare we eat from the tree of life and not say our grace? Or have a nerve to say a word about the worm that we taste? Or complain that we didn't get a cut of carrot cake while the weary wait on wounded knee for whatever we waste? Some of us lay up because we've been laid off, missing work like Patrick Ewing missed that layup in the 95 playoffs. Holy moly, Batman, the cat scan is way off. Like a trillion dollar debt opposite of upset can't be paid off. That's why I made a loan to my fame and the payback was to stay back. Shit, I've been doing this since 71. And my daughters, yeah, they dislike me but shorter. And they rain on my pain. God, no need for a son. He's directing me. I'm done and I feel good about it. Me, I'm just here to tell the suburbs and the hood about it. So y'all stay with me, but only holler if you really hear me, because we got you get me. I just lost my receipt. No return, and I couldn't even if I wanted to. What bothers me, their policy won't let you take back the fee. And she's gaming. Yeah, she still got a man. Three kings that do their thing, but she want to see your hand. And face it, you were fooled until your flush got beat by aces. Now she gone without no traces, and you don't understand. It's amazing what the letters will do. You Fortune 500, she fronted and brought out the ghetto on you. Stop playing. Russian roulette, what you see is what you get. Just squeeze the trigger and figure that she gonna do what she do. 
because when she look at you strange and spit out your cum, that means the damage that you did was never did till she's done. Be careful. She doing tricks that tricks are even scared you. She dares you then spread her legs enough to put a bear through. You grizzly, you poked a pipe. She said, I'll take that with me. She missed me. Hell no, she ain't no boomerang. She frisbee. <laughs> so I just treat her like no music. Pull her hair from the back. She'll look you in the eyes and call you acapella. Fuck a try. <laughs> Y'all stay with me. But only holly if you really hear me. She made a statement in stiletto. She was gracefully ghetto and put weight on the fellow that cannot be withstood. Her body statement was mellow, would have you waiting on yellow, and she could shake it like jello when in the spot that it stood. She had pimps approaching with proposals and packs, making metaphoric motion more than mice in the max, and oof, Lord. From the center of her skirt, she hit them so hard they didn't even have a hint they was hurt. And when she went to work, she left her proper player's pockets from fully paid to lent to dirt. Took them for every cent they was worth and had them living out her pocketbook because she had their rent in her purse. She pimp in reverse. And you know how she rolls with a clique of vets who poo-poo stay so wet I call them water hoes. Never rock clothes that exposed to skin. She has skin that exposed to clothes. I'm like, whoa. And I would see her every Tuesday at the spot posted up at the bar. And men would shoot her looks to let her know, I like to know who you are. Her eyes never replied. As if to say my eyes aren't the key to undressing me. I only use them as accessories to compliment the rest of me. So if you're trying to penetrate the chest of me so you can get to my heart, just know the way you finish is determined by the way that you start. And I sit back and watch men go at her, and she would shoot them right down. She said, I'm flattered that you're interested, but I'm not recruiting right now. And before they turn around, they thank God for that two seconds that they were in her presence just so she could turn them down. Because when she, and if she, and she could, <laughs> damn, y'all don't understand. She was a limited edition. What every man was missing, if you had her, you had something on your hands to the bang, bang. The boogie to the boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the basement of bodegas in Brooklyn. She had me hooked in. I had to have her. She was mine, and I was going to be her man. But I didn't know what route to take. I watched these dudes and learned from every mistake, because first impressions are confessions to intentions indeed. I mean, I had to learn what moves to make, because at this point, shit, a lot was at stake, because this woman was the one that I need. Fuck it. Shit, I walked over to her like she was waiting on me. <laughs> and as I crossed the room, I could feel them brothers hating on me. They was like, where did he come from? And that's none of their business. That's all they need to know is when I'm done, there ain't no one that ever did this. So then I walked over to him right before I spoke. I said, bartender, can I get a rum and coke? Then I turned and dropped the contents of my cup on her lap. Ooh, and she was steaming and stood up to see who she was going to slap. She said, look what you done done. You spilled your drink on my dress. I said, I know Bacardi rum looks beautiful on your flesh. And you look so lovely, I swear it should be a law. Plus, you were so perfect, I had to see how you looked in the floor. 
I said, I said, oh, you wear it well. By the way, um, my name is Mikael, but you can call, <laughs> but but you can call me Mikael. That's all right with me. And I could no longer ignore it, and I hate to be forward, but I was wondering if you'd like to share the knife with me. And boy, I spent so much game, she forgot she was staying. She said, look, I only come here to mingle. I said, well, me, I do the same, and it could hurt to give your name. She said, well, uh, my name is Janine. I'm single. Now, my thinking is, I'm her middle name, or a single her last, or was that a subliminal invitation to me, to me from her ass? <laughs> And that's when we engage. By chapter three, she captured me with each page. And in that short time, her storyline told tells of who she once was. Why she no longer believed that what you give is what you receive. And why she locked every man's fate behind the gate that was open to love. And that night, she introduced me to the moon. I never knew it was there. I lived my life through bad bets, lottery picks, dice games, double dares. Nothing was certain until I tasted the new and improved version of a lady laced in lemonade with limes for her lips. Hard to swallow half of what she told me and even less of what she showed me, so for her I knew I had to take sips. And I'm going to wait on her until I hear her sing the songs of Mikhail. I got the patience of a prostitute with pussy for sale. Because when she, and then she, and she could, <laughs> damn, y'all don't understand. She was a limited edition, what every man was missing. If you had her, you had something on your hands to the bang, bang. The boogie to the boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the basement of bodegas in Brooklyn. She had me hooked in, and I had to have her. She was mine, and I was going to be her man. Peace, y'all. Mikhail, we're getting flustered over here. That said, it's time to switch the lights over to our feature for this evening. You may remember our feature apology from our very first episode with Miles Bullen. She shared two poems as the very first poet we've ever had on our show. For our feature, she wanted to do some of her longer pieces, storytelling pieces which blend together fantasy and reality to tell a uniquely human experience. She finished with her classic spoken word piece about consent and a coffee order. Paula's stories were a truly memorable experience. And now, please have a listen for yourself. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to share with you guys um, these stories that I have been passionately working on. And it's been a passion of mine for a while to merge real life and the things we deal with in a way that is understandable to those outside of our community, um, but even more so helps you to search yourself and ask those questions when you can kind of look at it from the outside in and, and challenges you to kind of face yourself. Um, and so that's what these do. So I'm just going to share it. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to just read and uh, hopefully rock with it. And everything that I'm reading is available um, on my blog page. It is blocked, um, though. So if you are interested in rereading it or checking it out for yourself, um, definitely see me after the show. I'll be happy to give you the password to, um, to check them out. Okay. This is called Return to Cinder, a story about self-care, sort of. 
I like my house, even though it's not that big. And even though it's not that big, it is my house, and I like it. I like its small living room that doubles as a bedroom. I like the kitchen with the little sink right next to the refrigerator that opens backwards. I like the bathroom and how you can sit on the toilet and the tub at the same time. And even though it's small, it's all mine, so I like it. And there isn't much furniture in my little house. There's a small twin-size bed, a table, a chair, a desk with a TV on top, a microwave. And I don't have guests over ever because there's nowhere to seat them. But I love the people who I love, and I would gladly share my time and my energy with those loves, even though I can't share my space. See, one evening after a long and grueling day at work, I came home to find a package on my front porch. Just a plain brown box with no return address or message implicating who this package was meant for, but it was on my porch at my home, so I opened the door. Inside the box was this beautiful picture frame with a beautiful picture of a couple who I had never seen before. It was just a picture frame and just a picture, so I convinced myself that there was room here in my house. Here was this trinket that didn't feel like mine, but I knew it wouldn't take up much space, so I hung the frame up on the wall right above my TV. It felt fine, and I felt fine with it. The next day, I came home to another package propped up against my door. This box was a little bigger and a little wider than the previous. Inside were the makings of an end table and all the tools needed to build it. So I built it. I took three hours and 18 seconds, and after it was all done, I found space for it right beside my twin-size bed. Nothing to put on top of it, but it felt fine, so I felt fine with it. And each day for the remainder of the month, new packages arrived at my door. Lamps and chairs and pillows and decor and art and food and clothes and gadgets and gizmos and whozits and whatnots. And with every new box that came, I found space in my house to allow something in my life that wasn't there before. With each box, I convinced myself that I could find space because it felt fine and I felt fine with it. I'm pretty sure I was fine with it. And then all of a sudden, there was no space anymore. Instead of toilet paper, I was having to wipe my butt with frilly pillowcases that had been delivered to my front door by the dozens. And since I couldn't find my hairbrush, I was stroking my hair with some Spider-Man forks that came complete with the matching cups and plates. And I haven't been to work in days because the front door has been overwhelmed by a neon moccasin slipper collection from JCPenney. And I haven't eaten because the fridge is somewhere beneath four dozen gingerbread houses and 14 fruitcakes. And I know what you're thinking, I guess I could eat those, but they've been munched on by the ferrets because somebody sent to my house 20 ferrets, 15 porcupines, and a pigeon. <laughs> and with every little thing that was sent to me, I was convinced that I needed it, convinced it was fine. I thought I could find space for all these things, things they said would make me better, things that they said were better off with me. And it took me a while to realize nothing sent to me was even brand new. This was a used blender, a half-eaten watermelon, a book with the spine already broken, a shirt with a hole in it, a teapot with no handle, a teddy bear with no cotton, a stroller with no baby, a love letter written to someone else. There's no space here, and I'm starting to see that now, but I wish I had seen it earlier, before the last package came, before my space and home imploded and left me completely undone underneath all of someone else's shit. Shit that they said that I needed, and now I can't even remember who they are. I wish I had found the nerve to see this mess and leave it on the porch. I wish I had found the nerve to mark it, return to sender.
so this um this next piece I'm gonna read um is brand new. It's not on the site at all. I've been kind of. <laughs> I didn't even hear myself say that. Um, um, it's not on the site at all. I've been kind of um, working with the idea a little bit, but um, I'm going to read it to you guys, and um, uh, I hope it. I hope you like it, and it makes sense. And if it doesn't, like let let me know honestly. Like if afterwards it doesn't make sense, let me know because I don't want to put it in the book if it ain't making no sense. Okay, it's called Godspeed. Two minutes ago, I received a notification on my phone. It says that the world is about to end, and Godspeed to us all. I wonder two things. One, who controls the system that pushes the button to alert all of humanity that the world is about to end? And two, what does God's speed even mean? It's what people say to sailors or men on death row. God's speed, much different than a cheerful bon voyage, God's speed is like a dramatic ass good luck. Is God's speed slow? Are we going down in a day or two, meaning I have plenty of time to embrace every earthly thing I've ever wanted to do, like, I don't know, ride the rail of an escalator or bag groceries like a cashier? <laughs> or is God's speed fast, and by the time I've read the end of this text message, it's over? It's been like 30 minutes since they sent that first message, and much of nothing have happened, has happened. The people in the mall that I am in are still shopping, some are making phone calls, but most responded to this message no differently than an amber alert or a weather warning. It's not until minute 30 and one second that a clock begins to appear in the right-hand corner of all of our electronic devices, on the TVs, the digital displays of radios, and even my personal cell phone. 15 minutes on the top right-hand corner, a countdown, our Godspeed. Now people are panicking. They started to run and scream. Two people have just jumped from the balcony a few feet away from me. The world is ending in 15 minutes, and for some, that's too long. I found a space in the children's book section of Barnes & Nobles. Years ago, after watching some low-budget movie on Netflix, I decided that if the world was ever to end, I'd go right along with it. I was and am not interested in trying to survive. I'd rather go with everyone else. I don't, want, I don't want to stay here if I have to eat cans of corn to live and I'm forced to repopulate the earth with some random person like my high school janitor or an, or an actor from a TV show I didn't even watch. If we're all dying, then we're all going to the next place together. So I choose to die too. The Barnes & Noble is empty now. I heard the last employees run out and somebody shut the lights off. Have it probably. The world's ending, but turn off the lights. <laughs> Just me, my purse, my cell phone, and a skirt I bought a few hours ago that I was planning to wear to a festival later this week in a bookstore. The countdown clock says 8 minutes and 43 seconds. Not enough time to call anyone, and I think logically, in the most illogical time, there's not much I could say that would make the end of the world more significant. Because even the most famous people won't be famous when it's all over. There's nobody to remember Beyonce or Maya Angelou. The greatest works of all time won't matter because time will cease to exist. I wish I had painted a masterpiece. Yet maybe when whatever becomes of our planet comes, Kanye West's CD will be all that's left of humanity. When they savage the wreckage, they won't know that we all face forward on elevators or that you're not allowed to ask women over 30 how old they are or that we prefer to kill our planet slowly. For them, we'll be just a pile of garbage, white bones all with a cell phone in our hand. Our height, weight, beauty won't matter anymore each of us damn near exactly the same. What a waste it's all been. The clock reads six minutes and 28 seconds. 
My mom has called three times. I text back, I'm okay, I love you, see you soon. My eyes are tearing at the last line. She's calling again, but I sent her the voicemail. I opened Facebook instead. Status reads, Kelly James, this is it, the end of the actual world. It's been real, y'all. Lacey Mortalove Fleming posted, y'all got 12 minutes to get right with God. I want to see all of y'all in heaven. You better ask for forgiveness right now. Steve Washington posted, I love you, Godspeed, or whatever. I'm not going to post the status. My last status will forever be, ugh, I left my coupon at home. <laughs> but people die every day without time to leave a lasting impression status. 90% of deaths don't get a chance to say the perfect last thing. We just die. Car accidents, sicknesses we didn't know we had, freak events we didn't even have time to realize were happening here and then gone, alive and then not. It would be nice if there was a heaven. No big judgment line, though, and no hell. Those who were shitty just don't exist, and the rest of us, life part two, but with no cancer, no cholesterol, no mental illness, no bigotry or prejudice, no romance either, no overwhelming desire to be loved by someone, but just content with everyone. No sex, no sexual frustration or sexual appetite, nothing to pervert, no boy or girl, no young or old, no rich and no poor, no fashion, no beauty, no physical differences, no hunger, and no boobs. <laughs> let's keep music, though. Let's keep music and all the instruments, but not the voices or the words. And let's keep color and the feeling of sun on your skin. Three minutes, eight seconds. If there's anything else I would love to be doing right now, it'd probably be the night I found a small open mic been held in a fully, fully lit backside of a five-star restaurant. All the, once the restaurant had closed, once a month on Thursdays, the chef would make pizza or spaghetti, and all the staff would hang around for poetry and songs. I had learned that the chef was equally as passionate about singing. He was this older black man with a deep, raspy voice. There wasn't a mic or a DJ or even a host. There was just a space where the floor seemed to be perfectly clean all the time. Nobody really introduced themselves, and nobody felt more important than anyone else. People would just walk up to that clean spot on the floor and free themselves. The chef would sing, the waitress would do poems or raps, and one even played a flute. Random strangers from the street were invited too. The first time I went, there was no standing room. I barely got in the door, and when I asked someone what this event was called, they shrugged. So in my head, I nicknamed it Chef. I also didn't know his name. And at one time, I struck up a fling with the Jamaican busboy that had fizzled, but that had just fizzled away. I never got on stage or shared anything until one time I got drunk and I got brave. I decided to recite my favorite poem by Nikki Giovanni called, I Ate a Good Omelet. I was crying by the end of it, not because I was sad, but because as I said drunkenly from the mic, I really love an omelet like that. That moment was probably one of the most important in my life. That was just last year. And now it ends with everything else. I wonder what Chef is doing with the last minute and 29 seconds of his life. Hopefully he called his daughter after not speaking to her for nine years. That was always so sad to me. The older generation who refused to speak to their queer children just because they were queer. As if that person hadn't been birthed from their physical being. Hopefully she answered and they say they love each other, but not sorry. Hopefully people are not spending the last 91 seconds of their life saying sorry to each other. Sorry is such a useless sentiment. Almost like my bad. Why be sorry when you can just be different or better? I'm rarely sorry for things. I apologize or I regret things, but then I make a vow. 
I apologize. I shouldn't have lied to you about the baby. It was just easier to say it was yours. I regret showing up in that five-star restaurant I couldn't afford because now, with the last one minute on earth, I am alone in a mall instead of in your arms. If the after here offers any promises, let me do that for you. Whatever is coming from us is here now. I can feel it in the massive heat around me and the way the earth is starting to rumble. I hope this doesn't hurt. Life has been a lot of hurt and readjusting. The end should be merciful, right? For some reason, this feels like suicide. I know it isn't, but being helpless and waiting just feels like suicide. The whole earth, two feet on the ledge, arms behind us, holding onto the rails, looking at the water ahead of us, hearing the car swerve behind us, knowing that we are too embarrassed to go back now. This is the only option to let go. Excuse me. So this next one I read, I um, just recently posted to my blog, and I am really excited about this one. It was a concept I've been trying to work out for a while, and um, it's in the rough stages, but um, I think it did what I wanted to accomplish. Okay. This one is called Muchama. Before today, they called her Muchama. Before today, she was asleep, forgotten, not thought about, erased from history as if she never was and never would be. But she woke up to the sound of laughter. Laughter was always noise to her. It sounded like the demonic cry of blackened souls. This laughter, however, came from the bodies of silly young boys on a street corner in Richmond, Virginia. So she listened. They were patting their legs and shuffling their feet back and forth. From their mouths, they were crowing at the sky, trying to mimic the ancestral sounds they had seen on a documentary their mother made them watch. The boys didn't seem much interested in the film, but the dances they saw the slave men do intrigued them. So once the movie was over and mother told them to go outside and play, something had been stirred in them that needed to express. The boys shuffled their feet back and forth like Juba. They slapped their hands against their thighs and bulked and jolted in whatever rhythm their bodies could find. It wasn't long before their grunting and sighing turned into words. The language was unfamiliar in their mouth. Muchama drew in a deep breath and breathed her song into the boys' lungs. They began to sing with her. Call me from heaven into your hell. Call me to swing from your white ponytail. Don't ask me to dance for you, I won't. Don't ask me to sing for you, I won't. I sing only for Muchama. I dance only for Muchama. I make my own heaven in your hell. I make my own heaven from your hell. If you had looked on in that moment, you would have seen the coordinated steps of Muchama's father and mother and uncle dancing and singing along to a song they had sung in her family long before she was born and even before the slave ships. Each member of her family inserted their own names into the lines to remind themselves that they were not owned by their owners but captured by captors. The boys who danced along on the street corner heard Muchama's name come from their lips but didn't recognize it. So as they sung the song again, they inserted their own names and their own steps. One of the young men pulled out his cell phone and recorded his friend, who without knowing was honoring his ancestors and would soon go viral for a catchy tune that sounded like home. Instead of shuffling back and forth, he planted his feet in specific places, creating a two-step that other boys could mimic. This time, he looked directly into the camera as he rapped the lyrics to Muchama's song. I came from heaven, you bring me to hell. Ask me to live by the lies that you tell. Don't ask me to comply for you, I won't. Don't ask me to obey you, I won't. 
I ride and die only for Daquan. I ride and die only for Daquan. I make my own heaven in your hell. I make my own heaven from your hell. The boys uploaded the video later that night, each inserting their names into the song. By morning, the video had been shared upward of 50,000 times, and people had already started to make their own version. Muchama found herself breathing on children, adults, elders, and anyone who wanted to say exactly what Daquan had said and express their frustration and dance. It was such a war cry that many around the world were crediting Daquan with reviving the movement that had brought awareness to injustices like Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, Atiana Jefferson, and the crisis in Flint, Michigan. People all over social media were hashtagging and singing, I ride and die only for myself. But as the movement of the song grew across the country, so did the frustration of Blue Lives Matter supporters who had taken personal angst against the 16-year-old boy who stirred up the conversation of police brutality through a viral video. Muchama sat on the couch beside Daquan as local news anchors asked him about his lyrics on live TV. I didn't even write the song. I heard it from somewhere and remixed the lyrics, but I don't remember the original one. Daquan responded to the reporter who, who he had seen cover this very story he was singing about. Well, how does it feel, the anchor said. Are you going to record the rest of the song or your next big hit? Daquan adjusted uncomfortably in his seat as Muchama's presence swelled around him. It's not a song like that. It's, it's more like an affirmation, a reminder. It was never about the fame. I've gotten death threats at my house. Somebody threw a drink on me the other day. Yet had I called the cops on the car full of white kids who threw a drink on me, I would have had to hold my anger and keep a smile on my face just to make sure that the cops weren't afraid of me. That's what this song means. I ride and die only for Daquan, because ain't nobody else, especially not the cops, go ride or die for me. Muchama embraced Daquan as he tried to hold in tears. She walked away from the rest of the interview so Daquan could breathe without the weight of her world upon him. He spent the rest of the interview talking about a peace rally he would be speaking at the next morning. In the car ride home, he and his brothers laughed about the interview while their mother drove home tense and teary-eyed. She had been afraid for her sons for weeks now. Though proud, the viral fame had brought on so much unwanted attention, comments at her job, glares at church, even her son's father trying to capitalize off Daquan's fame. He wanted to sell t-shirts. Muchama put her hand over the mother's ears and helped her to find peace as she prayed. Though Muchama knew very little about the God that the mother was praying to, she knew words were powerful and could be carried out by their own strength. Ma, Ma, you got to pull over, Daquan's voice broke through mother's prayers. Immediately, she saw the blue and red lights behind her. In her prayers, she zoned out and hadn't noticed she was being pulled over. Sit still, boy, hands visible. We'll be okay, mother urged. The boys all watched silently as mother gave the officer her license and registration. Muchama stood outside the car, her eyes intensely focused on Daquan. She could feel his anger rising as the officer spoke rudely to his mother, who answered his questions as best she could, while he cut her off and questioned where they were coming from. It was obvious the cops knew exactly who they were. Daquan was breathing heavier now as one cop kept his flashlight in his face. Calm down, Quan, his mother reached for her, his bald fist resting on the dashboard. Both immediately reached for their gun, and within seconds had one pointed at Daquan and one at his mother. Through the window, axed. What's wrong, you mad boy? Daquan began to sing, lifting his fist raised into the air. I came from heaven, you bring me to hell, ask me to live by the lies that you tell, 
Don't ask me to comply for you, I won't. Don't ask me to obey you, I won't. I ride and die only for my mother. I ride and die only for my brothers. I make my own heaven in your hell. I make my own heaven from your hell. Muchama watched as the officers pulled a singing Daquan from the car. They slammed his body on the ground with so much force, he reached his arms around his body to shield the pain. The cops opened fire on Daquan. His body jolted and bucked as 17 bullets entered his chest and face. His family screamed, bullets flying around them, but none as fatal as those that killed Daquan. The next morning, they aired the interview with Daquan again. This time, they prefaced the videos by saying that Daquan had died the night before during a routine traffic stop. The officers claimed he had a gun, and the song he sang, referencing dying, only perpetuated their fear. A year later, the video dubbed Ride or Die Song was not popular anymore. Other dance crazes and challenges took its place, and folks had moved on from the sorrow of Daquan and his murderers, who were fired but free. Muchama, however, was still breathing on anyone who would take time to inhale. Her song hadn't been sung, and she was starting to go back to sleep. Daquan leaned in and kissed Muchama goodnight. She was done now, nobody to remember her again. Daquan, however, was just getting started. However, he would not be breathing. He would roar. If it's okay with you guys, I'm going to do one more. It's an a old one that some of you guys have heard before. Is that okay? Okay. Okay, this is called The Usual. The barista knows what I like. I get the same drink every Monday through Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And if I happen to come by on a Thursday, I might try the special, but Sunday, they aren't even open. On all the other days, I order the same drink the same way. My usual, one might call it, it's venti half-whole milk, one-quarter, one-percent, one-quarter, non-fat, extra-hot, split quad shots, one-half shot decaf, two-half shots regular, no-foam latte with whip. Two packets of Splenda, one sugar in the raw, a touch of caramel, and three short sprinkles of cinnamon. It's complicated, I know, but I've been ordering this drink daily for over a year now. All the baristas know my drink by memory and sometimes start to make it before I even get to the counter to request it. Without fail, however, once I'm at the cash register, the baristas who I all know and all know me will ask, Miss Gillison, what can I make for you today? I sigh and I smile and I say my order out loud. It's... Venti half-whole milk, one-quarter, one-percent, one-quarter, non-fat, extra-hot split quad shots, one-half shots decaf, two-half shots regular, no-foam latte with whip, two packets of Splenda, one sugar in the raw, a touch of caramel, and three short sprinkles of cinnamon, please. It tastes perfect. Just what I asked for, just what I wanted. I used to get upset at having to say my drink request over and over, and I would say to the baristas, if you know by now what I want, why do you ask? And they would respond without hesitation, knowing what you like. There's no reason to assume that's what you want. See, I knew that they knew my drink order, and they knew that I knew that they knew they had to ask, that it was polite not to assume, but to ask. So when my lover of three years woke me up out of my sleep to tell me to wipe his semen off of my swollen vagina, I couldn't help but wonder how his drinks were being handled. He's a simple man. She just wants a hot coffee with a lot of sugar and a little cream. Maybe the barista thinks she knows him well enough to make his drink without asking what he wants. It's likely that he walks into the door, sees her working all dirty smock and wide-eyed, and knows that he doesn't have to say a word, that she's ready and available to give him what he wants, 
Maybe he feels entitled. I mean, he's been coming to this coffee shop for three years. Why would he need to remind her that he likes his coffee hot, that he wants a lot of sugar and a little cream? And it doesn't matter how much a lot is a lot or how little is a little. It just matters that it's ready and available whenever he wants it. Maybe the barista's been making things a little too easy for him. So when he said those words to me, clean up, we just had sex, I wasn't going to get upset, at least not when he could see me, especially when I knew that he knew he hadn't given me his order. He's supposed to ask because he knew that I knew that he knew that we weren't open on Sundays or when I was sleeping or when I hadn't consented yet. So this, sir, is breaking and entering. This is stealing. This is not the usual. It's venti half whole milk, one quarter I didn't give you permission, one quarter no, you don't own my body, you got an axe, extra hot split, I'll use this gun shot, one half shots don't touch me, two half shots get the fuck out of my house, no foam latte, get off of my body with whip. Two packets of Splendor, one sugar in the raw, a touch of caramel, and three short sprinkles of, I don't care if we're in a relationship, it's still called whip. Thank you guys. Folks, that brings us to the end of our program. We want to say thanks again to Savon for teaching us the path to ascendance, to Conduit for floating our eight-year-old self to the stars, for Demi for drawing a love letter to God, to Mikkel for when she, and if she, and she could, and topology for making a heaven in our hell. If you'd like to take a part in the show, be it performer or listener, please join us every first Saturday of the month in Studio 59, Plant Zero, Richmond, Virginia. Our writing workshop begins at 5.30 p.m., the open mic and artist feature at 8.30 p.m. The Slam Richmond podcast is a production of Slam Richmond. It is edited by Tyler Grillcheese Eldred and hosted by January Garcia. Our theme music is by the wonderful Budo Fox. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our new Facebook page, all at Slam Richmond. And feel free to share, subscribe, and leave a comment on our show. Until next time, Slam fam, keep on writing the good right. <laughs> <laughs>